What are the things fantasy owners misunderstand about the game? Peter Kreutzer of Ask Rotoman and Tout Wars has been thinking about that for a long time, and we'll talk with him next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 3rd. It's show number 10 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll talk with Peter Kreutzer of Ask Rotoman and Tout Wars about what fantasy owners misunderstand about the game, about what to make of early season developments. He'll have his boons and banes and a whole lot more. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The real games are underway. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Peter Kreutzer, from Ask Rotoman and Tout Wars. Peter, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. Nice to be here. Early in the season, of course, so far, just a few games in the books, but there are games in the books. Uh, after a few days, how are your teams doing? Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, some of them are doing very well, and some of them are doing poorly, and it is utterly meaningless, I'd say. Uh, yesterday, I got a big kick out of um, excellent starts from Francisco Liriano and Ronaldo Lopez on my AL-only team. Um, I really need those guys to be good, and I didn't. I don't have any confidence that they both will be. But it was, it's like, whoa, that is great to get quality starts out of those two guys in the first their first starts of the season. So, you know, ups and downs, but um, it, it, it's all it's all an adventure still. An adventure is a good way to put it, and it's so tempting after we've been sitting around for months looking at preseason projections and trying to figure out playing time and so forth and, you know, trying to, you know, throw the runes or whatever it's called, like in, examine the entrails of a dead cat trying to put a strategy together, and all of a sudden we have these real games to sink our teeth into, and sometimes it feels like maybe we bite more into it than is really worth biting into at this point, given the, the small sample size. I, I have an experience similar to yours. I was uh, on Sunday sitting around uh, looking at my team on the uh, uh, on Roto website for Tout Wars in the American League, and I was sitting around 10th, I think, with 60 points or 55 points or something like that. And uh, Justin Smoke, who's on my team, hit a grand slam home run. I jumped 15 points on that one event. Nice. But... But meaningless, right? I mean, he's not going to hit a 10-point grand slam uh, a month from now or even uh, probably two weeks from now because the stats will pile up. And then Garrett Cole, for me, had a big game on Sunday as well, and that shot me up. In the, but if when I looked at the standings five minutes later, I was back down to where I'd started or halfway in between. It's just, uh, it's just it's fun to look at, but we should not put too much into it, I guess, is what we're telling anybody who's listening. Uh, but there are things to watch for all the same. What are you watching for in the first uh, few days or weeks of the season? Um, well, I, I think, you know, the obvious things are, are the early injuries, whether when the guys is, is 
Guriel actually coming back on Wednesday or Thursday, I forget now, um, but in the middle of this week as opposed to in the middle of May, which is a big difference than what the expectations were a couple of weeks ago, um, or the questions about who gets to be the closer, who's in, in all these situations where it's uh, up in the air in Texas and St. Louis and um, to a lesser extent in, in Arizona, and, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. All We sort of, everybody has a feel for what they think is going to happen, and, and now that the games have started, it starts working itself out. Um, I the, the bullpen by committee thing is a big one because sabermetrics tells us, you know, you don't need to have a closer, you should use your best guy in, the, in for each situation, but almost every manager and and pitching coach and you know likes to have a rotation of guys so, and the pitchers themselves like to know what their job is and when they're going to be used um so i think we as we go along we'll expect to f- those situations to fall into a little bit of a more traditional um approach and and the people who bought the right guy will will say hey i've got a two dollar closer and the ones who didn't will say no i didn't get him we have six new managers, I believe, in, in in the big leagues this year, and some of them in the early going do seem to be a little more willing to go out on a limb as far as challenging the hidebound traditions of the game. Uh, I noticed the other day, I think it might have been Dave Martinez in Washington did something with his batting order. He moved Trey Turner out of the top of the order and, and made, a, made a couple of other moves. And uh, our mutual friend Joe Sheehan wrote in his newsletter that uh, these were things that looked like uh, an attempt to use sabermetrics to optimize his lineup. And it was uh, definitely untraditional. But is there any chance some of this stuff is going to finally sneak through as we get these new young managers? Well, I think we, I think we are seeing a shift to where the... Um the, the responsibility for these sorts of things, it falls on managers, and the heat goes to the front office more than the manager. So these young managers are being hired in order to implement changes, both um, some of them in the communication with players, but some of them also in, in introducing new ideas. And um, the old school managers you know, would, would just say bosh on that. And uh, these guys are um, are willing to do things because they know that there might be ways to improve things and to make things work better. I don't know how much. I'm, I'm not saying I'm skeptical of anything. I, I'd like to see ideas tried. I'm not sure that it makes a big difference in terms of run scoring for um, Billy Hamilton to bat ninth rather than eighth. But it's uh, but it's you know it's that's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting thing that Tony Larusa, who was the, like the one manager who did a lot of these sorts of things in the past, um, innovated with, and and now we see more and uh, more of the young guys doing that. Do you ever get the feeling sometimes that uh, uh, it would be much more helpful if a young manager or a an innovative manager like Tony Larusa was the guy who stepped up and tried these things because they're they tended to be uh, Larusa anyway tended to be with good teams and it's a lot easier to look like you're a genius when you have good players than it is when you're experimenting with new techniques because you have bad players and at the end of the day it's definitely going to be the manager who has the better players who's going to win the most games no matter what techniques or, or tricks he tries to Im- implement. Right. I don't think the tricks are not going to take a, a bad team and put them over the top for sure. In the, on this question, I was thinking um, about 
Davy Johnson and his bullpen, and and um, Roger McDowell, and uh, um, you know the the uh, the other closer. He had one of the few closing situations um, where he used two guys interchangeably, not interchangeably, but he used them in specific roles, and he and they each got half the saves, and um, or roughly half the saves. And worked really well together in terms of getting matchups and and um, winning games for the for the Mets. Um, he was an innovative manager who also had pretty good personnel behind him, um, to, which I think goes to your point. And I remember uh, years ago, and I'm sure you do too, that the uh, Red Sox tried a bullpen by committee approach and it failed spectacularly, but the problem wasn't the bullpen by committee approach, is that it was that everybody in the committee was a fairly bad pitcher, and of course they were roundly uh, pilloried in the Boston press and in the baseball press, and as a result, the experiment kind of died on the vine, and it seemed to like poison the idea for the entire major league community for a number of years. And I can't help but wondering what, what would have been the case if they had two really good pitchers or three really good pitchers like they did in Seattle years ago with the Nasty Boys, uh, Charlton and, uh, I mean, Cincinnati, sorry, uh, Norm Charlton and, and uh, Myers and um, uh, the third guy's name escapes me, a big burly uh, fireballer. Rob Dibble. Oh, right. It was Rob Dibble, yeah. And there was a case where you had three guys who were being used somewhat in, in an interchangeable way or in a rotating way, and it worked fine. And, and uh, again, it comes back to uh, it, it's fine and dandy to say I'm going to rotate my players, but if two out of the three of them aren't good or even one out of the three of them isn't good or none of them is good, then uh, all of a sudden you're going to have a problem. Yeah, good good point about the Nasty Boys. And Jesse Orozco is the other guy in, for the Mets. And, and um so those situations have come up in the past, and you're absolutely right about one of the the fantasy baseball world went crazy when the Red Sox said they were going to a bullpen by committee. And I I remember being at one of those uh, Chandler um, first pitch things in the preseason, and and so much of the event was taken over by people wondering how in the world who was going to be the who's going to get the saves in Boston, and how were what was going to happen, and it just sent everybody into a tizzy and then as you said it the personnel wasn't there and it fizzled out quite spectacularly over the longer season uh, what other trends or macro stuff will you be watching the thing that's evolved in the last few years has just been this incredible um incursion of talent that is just called up constantly by the major leagues as they deem the players as they get control over players for another year in, in their contracts. So when, when, you know, Ronald, when is Ronald Acuna coming? When is, when are all the, when is Glaber Torres going to come in the end of April, the end of May, the end of June? It's the, these questions are, um, have such a huge influence on the season. And, Depending on the rules that leagues play by, these players either cost money in the draft in a draft spot, or they, or they're reserve picks, which means they didn't cost anything at all, and they they might have a you know a very disruptive influence on the good fortunes of teams as it goes along. Um, so the, I think the the beat 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 of that changes the shape of teams and changes the shape of fantasy teams in big ways. Um, 
and and I, that's the I think that's the big story of the last few years is that um, there's so much young talent and it's being promoted so much more aggressively and at the same time, not at the start of the season. So it it has a there's a very um, in a very random effect in some ways on, on how the season goes depending on when these guys are called up. Another thing that I've been looking at, Peter, is uh, or wondering about it, I think it's too early to look at it, but before the season there were some hints and sort of uh, suggestions rattling around the edges of the uh, baseball universe that they might do something with the baseball to, to tame down the uh, amount of home runs being hit and or that uh, pitchers would, were more likely to start pitching up in the zone and try to generate weak fly balls because I guess the theory is it's harder to uppercut a pitch that's at the letters than it is to uppercut one that's down around the knees. I don't know that it's happened yet, uh, but I can tell you that I threw a couple of gambles in my draft this year on Marco Estrada and Jake Odorizzi, who are relatively significant fly ball to a uh, fly ball oriented pitchers because I thought maybe if there's something to that and if the umpires will give them that top strike all of a sudden your extreme fly baller pitcher maybe looks a little bit better and a little bit less threatened by the idea that uh, being up in the zone automatically leads to a lot of home runs uh, what do you think about the the likelihood of the home run barrage from the last couple of years continuing into 2018 well I saw evidence um, I think it was Jeff Sullivan did a look at uh, fly balls and home runs per fly ball during spring training and compared it to previous years and then tracked that to what happened in the seasons that followed. Um, and there seemed to be a correlation um, between the two. And it, based on um, his, you know, obviously small sample, spring training, games are meaningless, blah, 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 um, it, it looked like home runs were going to be up. And I don't see... I mean, it's too early for to judge. I don't know if they're up or not, or you know, there's a lot of there's been a lot of weather and this and that. Um, I think pitchers have to figure out how to adjust the, the the bad pitchers. I mean, that's the the thing we really have to focus on here is the good pitchers are are you know dominating the hitters. They're they're the good pitchers aren't having a a problem. It's the bad pitchers who are all just getting. Plastered, and um, if they can pitch up, they they have an advantage. Uh, the strike didn't used to be there twenty years ago, but it, it's there now for them if they can get the ball up there. It's just hard to do, and if when you make a mistake, it ends up being a big meatball. Um, so it's there's you know there's danger working up in there if you if you if you don't have if you can't deliver it. So I don't know if if the I don't think the home run trend is going away anytime soon until they run out of these balls that seem to be so responsive. But um, it, it, pitchers are going to keep trying to find ways to get out of it, and, and pitching up is definitely one of the, the ways to, to try and help themselves. And, Peter, are there any kinds of players that you're going to be watching with interest, types of players rather than specific players? Well, um, the... It's a. I, I like. I watch everybody. I guess. I so. I'll, let me just say about a, a couple of people. The in the first few days, like Jake Marisnik is somebody who he went incredibly cheap in my draft on in my auction on Sunday, and he. But he's he's played. He's off to a good start. He's um, he's got a history of being productive. Uh, 
I don't know what you do with that, but we just always it, it, undervalue him for for whatever reason. And um, and it, it just struck me that there's a little bit of a blind spot with it when it comes to him. Um, the other was I watched Nick Markakis hit a home run um, that made me think that he decided to do something different than he's done in the last five years. And um, that would be a significant change if he actually did. I don't know that that's going to happen, but um, but he looked he looked um, pumped in a way that, I don't mean physically, he just looked aggressive and, and, uh, and powerful in a way that I hadn't seen him in recent years. So uh, I look, you know, I just look for players, for things that have changed or for places where we miss spots, trying to figure out um, and evaluate what we've been talking about all spring, and then all of a sudden the game started, and, and we have to say, well, wait, did, how, why did that happen? Or why didn't that happen? And, and those are the questions that are always coming to mind for me. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from Ask Rotoman and Tout Wars. And uh, Peter, you're the manager, the guy who runs the Tout Wars drafts. How'd they go this year? Oh, I think uh, it was. We tried something different this year. We um, we took over Richmond Bank Ballpark at St. George, a mouthful of a name, the home of the Staten Island Yankees. And um, we worked with the Yankees, and they um, they set us up in the in the locker home locker room and in the home uh, exercise room, equipment room, um, with a table. And it was for the most part very comfortable. Um, we got to use the batting cage. That was, I think, you know, the highlight for just about everyone um, was using the batting cage and uh, it, taking some swings, hitting some line drives in my case, which I felt very satisfied with. And um, and uh, we did. We had the four auctions all on a Saturday. Sirius XM covered them over 11 hours, and I, I you know, I think it for the most part went very well. Uh, we had some early issues with the Wi-Fi, which is like that seems to be par for the course with the new every video. year yeah um and trying to get so many people on to it uh, to a router at one time um but we sorted that out okay and uh and i think everybody had a pretty good time the the yankees took care of us and gave people tours of the stadium which is a beautiful beautiful ballpark on new york harbor looking over overlooking southern manhattan and and the um and New Jersey and the Statue of Liberty. Uh, I know none of that has that much to do with baseball, but it was. Uh, it was. It, we're always looking for interesting places to have the drafts, and I think this was an interesting place. And um, and uh, and everybody, you know, finished their draft, which is the important thing. Well, I was uh, lucky enough to be part of that whole drafting situation, and I thought the drafting in the ballpark was great. Uh, it's, it seems like uh, most of my Tout Wars drafts, the, the one thing I can remember is always feeling crowded because we've been in radio studios or uh, you know in, in a ante room off of the side of a, of a restaurant somewhere. We, we uh, obviously move around uh, the draft, but in this case, in that locker room, we had plenty of elbow room. Uh, there was lots of room to, to spread out and move around. I really thought it was terrific. And just being in a ballpark has that ambience that you can't recreate in pretty much any other environment. I thought it was tremendous, and I really enjoyed the trip over. I've been to New York many times in my life, never took the Staten Island Ferry. Now I've done that, and I can stroke that off. It was just a fun trip uh, all the way around. And uh, if if there's a vote, Peter, my vote is let's go back there again next year if, the, if they'll have us. Um, 
Peter, at your Ask Rotoman blog, you discussed what was a fairly significant change in the Tauors head-to-head league scoring system. It's the third scoring system this league has had in three years. What's the system changed to, and why did you do it? Well, well, this year we moved to head-to-head points, which happens to be the most popular format for head-to-head games played in the world. Um, we adopted something similar to the CBS Sports point system, which is uh, a pretty straightforward um, scoring system for head-to-head. And uh, the main reason was because it is the most um, the most popular scoring system. We wanted to do something that played this very popular game in a manner that the mo- most people played it, so that their their experience watching it would be similar to what they're experiencing when they play it. Um, and that was uh, that's not always our motivation in Tau Wars. We you know we try to be innovative and we try to um, push things like on base percentage as a category rather than batting average. But in this case, we want we decided to start with a point system that was traditional, and um, we'll take it from there. I think we'll probably have some changes in the future, but it's um, it's a it's the the most popular system, and and uh, that we decided to adopt it because of that. It seems to me, as somebody who has never organized something like this, uh, we tried it one year in my home league, uh, running it in parallel, uh, doing a rotisserie-style scoring system for head-to-head play. But it, it seems to me that the challenge with the points league is getting the points balanced right so that there's a equal need for hitters and pitchers and position players and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you mentioned that you adopted the uh, uh, CBS model for the points. Uh, is it a challenge to figure out what is that perfect balance, or do you figure, well, CBS has got a pretty much right, and it has the advantage of being something that everybody knows and, and understands? Well, the people knowing it and understanding it and it being a little bit tested definitely helped as far as that goes, having um, confidence in it. The um, the challenging part, I found, is that it, it's not just about balancing the hitting and pitching points, because you're... Um, because the replacement level at each position is different. You have um, guys who are earning 500 points up here, and, and then their replacement play value is, is 300, while at a different position there's guys earning 300, but their replacement level is 33, and they're actually on some kind of a similar scale in terms of marginal points added. And um, I, that all is is kind of mind-boggling, and... Uh, we decided to try and keep it as simple as possible and not mess with things this year to in order to test it out and see how we all liked it and and we'll get feedback at the end of the year and maybe we'll make some adjustments um my issue with the head to head has always been that it is it does away with having to have balance on your team. You don't have to have a. You're not dumping a category and then paying a price for it. You're just dumping a category. You're, you could be dumping all your categories except for one and um, conceivably compete if you pick the right one and get the right guys. So that was always my resistance to it. Yeah. But we're trying it out, and uh, we'll we'll see how it goes and, and adjust next year. 
As soon as you said that, I thought to myself, that would be the problem for me. And, and just as a conceptual thing is that it seems to encourage uh, uh, a certain amount of gamesmanship or gaming the system rather than, than trying to build a balanced roster, which is all fine if that's what people want to do. I mean, there's no requirement that a fantasy roster reflect the realities of modern day baseball. It's just a way the players are just a random number generating system that, uh, that you can, well, not exactly random, I guess, but they generate the numbers that you use to compete with and any system is an okay system if everybody likes it. But you also said in your blog post that the fact that this head-to-head league is auction-based rather than snake draft, which I understand is the great majority, also has important effects. What are those effects? Well, the, um, the shallow league, 12 teams um, auction, means that everyone go, is going to go to stars and scrubs. A, a draft ensures that everyone uses a similar approach to um, buying the next most points. Uh, but auction stars and scrubs allows the savvy team to do something clever. And uh, and that's what happened. Yes, you said newcomer Justin Mason uh, of Fantasy Friends with Benefits might have figured out a new approach with his stars and scrubs that focused on pitchers rather than hitters. Uh, give us the overview of what Justin did and why you thought it was such an interesting idea and potentially a very successful idea. Well, what um, Justin did, and we, and we saw it unfolding, and I, but I definitely did not understand um, the implications while the auction was going on. He bought Kershaw, and he bought Scherzer, and then he bought more starters as we went along, and he didn't buy any hitters. Um, they weren't all great starters. He bought Dan Straley for some reason, but, um, but he basically filled out his pitching staff and then, and then uh, bought cheap hitters at the end. And the, um, the reason it became clear is because by having a team full of starters, he would have the most pitchers who would have two game starts in any week. And that would give him a huge advantage over teams that had a relie- who had relievers or who had, didn't have starters who were going two games. And, and he was naturally going to have a big advantage because he had Kershaw and Scherzer and nobody else had you know, the most any other team had of those ace guys was was one. So um, what becomes clear when you look at it and is happening now is his team pounds me in the first period of the season. He's got it. Even though the pitchers earn the same number of points as the hitters in, at the max, like Kershaw and Trout and Scherzer and and. Mookie Betts or whoever, Altuve, they all are at the top of the points in roughly the same area. Though, on a week-to-week basis, those pitchers earn way more points than the hitters do generally. So um, a couple of good starts, and, and Kershaw's got 50 points in a week, and and, uh, and you know a good week for Trout is, is 25 points. So it's... Um, it's that gives him a huge advantage. The way our um, wins are allocated, you win two wins for winning uh, hitting, two wins for winning pitching, and then four wins for winning the overall. And uh, his challenge is going to be winning the overall each week. He's going to lose the hitting most weeks, but he's going to win the pitching by more than he loses the hitting, and that's going to give him the overall for a four and two record every week. And that's should be a, a championship one, and that that is gaming the system a bit. 
it's also recognizing that in a shallow league there is there are lots of hitters there at the end, and what he did was filled out with enough, so he's not going to lose hitting by, uh, you know, uh, a huge amount. He's going to be able to put up a representative offense every week. He may even win some, and that is uh, that makes his team pretty hard to beat. And, of course, a key issue that you raised right there is the opportunity for uh, fantasy owners out there to follow along with this league and realize, hey, this is uh, this is something I need to be thinking about, uh, maybe not just for uh, this year, but in future drafts. If, if Justin is very successful and there are guys out there playing in a, a similar format, may uh, cause a, it may be the modern equivalent of the Lima plan, I guess is what I'm getting at. And that raises another question for me, Peter, in the run-up to drafts, when we're moving up towards everybody drafts, the obvious use of Tout Wars is to provide fantasy owners with price markers and valuations for the players. Once the season has started, though, how can fantasy owners best take advantage of Tout Wars? Well, I think the the entertainment value of following along, to some extent, is um, is there. Like, if you say, well, I wonder, fabbing each week is, and fabbing and moves on the weekly um, turn is the you know, is the main thing that changes each week. Um, we this year we moved the fab deadline from midnight on Sunday to one o'clock on um, Sunday afternoon, with the idea that um, we'll be able to get news of the fabbing out in the afternoon. You'll be able to um, read Todd Zola's article at toutwars.com about it in the late afternoon. Um, Laura Michaels is going to be featuring the transactions and fab um, discussion on his on the Tout Wars Radio Hour on, on Fantasy Sports Network, and um, and you can just go to the website and see what moves people made, and and hopefully people will be able to see they'll be able to see who what free agents are being picked up. It's not always um, an obvious. Some of the names are are surprising sometimes, and you know sometimes the Touts know things that. Um, other other people might not see. So I think that's the in-season thing that can happen is just being aware of the player pool and who's hot and who's not and and um and how that's reflected in the weekly transactions is the main the main use of the league. Something else that always interests me when I'm following along experts leagues or anybody's leagues is how owners in rotisserie style formats uh, try to balance their rosters through the year with trades and or unbalance their rosters to take advantage of how the standings are setting up. And I think that's an interesting thing to follow as well, not just because it's Tout Wars, although, of course, you've got excellent players who are trying to manage the categories in that way. But it's something that a lot of owners, in my in my experience, still aren't really getting when you talk about a trade, they just want to trade salary for salary or big name for big name, and they're still not really getting that the most important thing after the season starts is you got to make points in the categories, and that means sometimes making trades that look a little bit weird. Absolutely. The, the Early in the season, it's a little uh, more problematic, but as the, as the season unfolds, all of a sudden, a player's value—any player's value to any given team—is different because of their position in the standings and then where they are in each of the categories. And so, um, the, the being open to that, and and part of watching other people play, I think, might, as you suggest, might be a, a, a good thing to seeing other people use strategies that maybe you haven't thought of or that you haven't. Um, 
you haven't ever seen executed, so you don't know how the how it would play out. Um, definitely watching what other people do in the, that way can can be helpful. That it's one of the reasons why people look at trades and they always say, "Oh, that guy got that guy got hosed," and uh, and because it, it looks imbalanced. But the guy who made the trade, who was getting hosed, well, maybe he did. But for the mo- usually, he's got a motivation. He sees something else there in terms of value that helps his team, that makes it reasonable for him to do that. And that's um, following along with what other people do and critiquing it is maybe a way of helping you see ways to uh, to be creative with your own team. Peter, this has been great so far. Can you hang on for just a minute while I do a little business and then we'll talk about misunderstood concepts? Yeah, sure. Well, this is the time of the show when I get to give you a few examples of why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time today, coverage of the new season looks at players like Matt Wieters, Joe Musgrove, Delino DeShields, and Mike Zanino all headed to the DL, and Razel Iglesias coming off the DL. In Rotisserie Gaming, Thomas McFeely explains embracing injury for a competitive advantage. And in Facts and Flukes, Brant Chesser has performance validation analysis of players like Josh Tomlin, Aledmus Diaz, and Carlos Gomez. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time, and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. It's time for part two of our Tuesday Tout Expert interview with Peter Kreutzer from Ask Rotoman and Tout Wars. And Peter, a few years ago on your blog, uh, Ask Rotoman, you ran a series of the 10 most misunderstood concepts in fantasy baseball. And I'd like to talk about a few of them. Uh, the first one that you devoted quite a bit of uh, time to was the 65-35 hitting-pitching split in uh, auction leagues. And you noted that what people misunderstood is why that 65-35 split makes sense, given the 50-50 split of productive value. Why is the why is the 65-35 so well established after all this time? Well, it, 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 it's so established that it it just happens. There's no escaping it. Um, uh, the you go into a draft and you decide to spend eighty um, percent on hitting and. 20% on pitching, the the draft overall is still going to be roughly 65-35. It's more 67-33 in leagues in recent years, but um, the, the basic ratio is the same. And it, that's always seemed been a bit of a paradox because half the points are um, come from the hitting and half come from pitching. So it would make sense to me that you would want to devote half your um half your money to buying half your points. The reason that is not the case um, is I, has been a discussion for 30 years or more longer, I suppose. And um, there have been a couple of theories. One, the, the simplest one was always that there were 14 hitters and nine pitchers. So, of course, there's the ratio because that's the, that's roughly the same ratio, which doesn't really address any of the issues. It just means that everybody's pay, paying the same average price for a player, and um, that doesn't make any logical sense. Um, and the other thing that people settled on at some point was that it was because pitchers are unreliable, that we don't project them as well, We they get hurt, they're, uh, 
they don't they're just more inconsistent in terms of uh so we discount them and and that there is something a little bit to that except that the best pitchers are generally as reliable as the best hitters from year to year um pitching careers are are much more up and down because of you know pitchers always seem to get an injury for a year or so um even the most consistent pitchers generally lose some time to injury but um but the, but hitters do as well anyway the my the point was that pitchers the best pitchers are reliable and so you would think you would pay um Max Scherzer the same as you would pay Mike Trout and uh but we don't and um and I I think I found the reason uh and that is that a disproportionate amount of the pitching stats aren't bought on auction day they're available for free during the season and so there's an incentive not to pay for stats which may go away because of injury and this which are then also recoverable because there's so much of um there's so many of them available on the waiver wire during the season and um that's the reason that i mean that's my theory is that the pitchers are paid less because we have such a hard time identifying each year's best group that's the that's the real problem identifying the year's best group I thought it was interesting the idea of free loot as it was called in your piece uh, and the the that's something that we should be thinking about all the time is uh, I don't need to buy it at auction because I'm going to be able to pick it up in one way or another during the year through the free agent pool. And of course that varies depending on whether you're playing single league formats or shallow mixed or deep mixed, or the, the, all of those kind of things affect that. You also mentioned something I thought was really interesting uh, that I knew about but hadn't really thought about or applied. And that is because the pitchers have two ratio categories a bad pitcher or a pitcher who's having a bad year can actually generate negative value and drag you backwards in the category, whereas that's only true of one category for hitters. That's true, and um, and not even that much. And I mean, the the ratio categories are redundant in, in pitching. So if you have somebody who goes bad, they go bad um, at twice the velocity of somebody who, like Rudet Odor, goes goes bad as a as a hitter um so that uh that definitely you know there no no hitter ever earns minus 25 dollars but every year there's a chris tillman who does or worse and um you the effect of that unsurprisingly isn't as isn't as um completely bad because you could always dump the guy or bench him but the effect is bad, especially if you've paid money for them. So um, that definitely affects the the prices we pay. Are these changes or or uh, these uh, effects real, or are they perception based? Are the effects real? Do you mean is there a economic basis for them? Well, no, I'm wondering when you sit down at a draft table and you know that uh, most of the guys are going to adhere pretty closely to standard valuation models, despite all of these considerations that we've been talking about, is that because they've, they, they do it from an economic basis or because the perception is that these things are true and, or some combination of those two things? Well, I think it's definitely a combination of two things. And one of the um, when for those of us who were trying to figure this out in the early days of um, 
rotisserie baseball analysis. It was all very, uh, we didn't, I, you know, I don't know any of us who had uh, an economics background or who had, we were figuring it out. We were re- I, I started reading statistics and started reading economics to try and figure out how um, these systems worked. And, and I almost, and every, you know, people like Leslie Apold and, and uh, Alex Patton, who are my friends, were doing the same thing. We met a few years later, and we had all gone through a similar process of, like, asking the big questions and then talking to people who we knew who had different backgrounds in, in terms of um, academics and trying to get a, a handle on how the system worked so that we could make good prices, so that we could make rational prices, and so that we could try and find inefficiencies or places where um, our systems broke down at the extremes um, in order to gain an advantage or where other people's systems broke down so that we could gain an advantage. And um, I think that the market as a whole is works in maybe not a perfectly efficient way, but it the market itself pointed to most of the observations if you if you read the factors in the market that create the prices and and create the situation in which players pay prices for the other for the real baseball players that those are those things are determined by economics but the players themselves are to a certain extent saying who's going to help my team most and um and we know from Modeling, we all know from modeling, the modeling that we've been doing for um, creating prices for the last 30 years, that this is what guys cost. This is what it, in, the, in my magazine, you know, I publish what guys cost and what they earn each year. And there's, you, you can definitely see that there's a correlation between the two. The people, the market pays what basically those players are worth in any given year. Um, so it's, it's not an either or. I think it's both things are happening at the same time. Um, and as analysts and as people who play the game, we should be looking for places where the system breaks down and we can take advantage of whatever um, inconsistency or inefficiency there is. I've I've often thought that if you took a look at maybe. 200 leagues all playing the same rules and aggregated what or averaged out what everybody was paying for particular players. I bet they're super accurate as far as what they end up generating at the end of the season. You know, in the early days of stat services, there was um, Heath Data Services was the was the rotisserie um, stat service of, uh, that everybody used. And, um, and Jerry Heath ran it in uh, out of Virginia Beach, Virginia, and he would send out the most detailed reports. I still have some of them, which um, would compile all the the rotisserie leagues and tell you the max price for every player, the average price, the minimum price, how many winning, how many first place teams a, a player was on, and how many um, on draft day, and how many last place teams a player was on on draft day, and you could pour through that, and you could see where players influenced the standings by the breakout player, the guy you never expected to do anything who was turned out to be on a bunch of first place, more first place teams than, um, you know, the best hitter did because he was paid for full price. Um, that data was, was compiled by Jerry and was an incredible trove. And, um, nobody else has ever taken their stat service 
and opened it up th- that same way, partly because the game fractured, and instead of everybody playing the same 4x4 four four rotisserie rules, um, we now play 5x5, five 4x4, five, four four batting average, on-base percentage. Um, there's just so many, a lot of people play 6x6, six six or it's just, um, it, there are way too many different varieties to do that aggregation, perhaps, but I agree, and I wish we had that data. It would be uh, it would be quite it would be quite helpful. A couple of years ago, uh, I dealt with OnRoto.com, our stats provider at Tout Wars, and I emailed them and I asked for that kind of aggregated data. And basically, that's the story I got back. He, the guy was more than happy to help me out and send me the data I wanted, but he cautioned and he said, "You know, if you're looking for a particular set of rules with a particular league format, you know, you're not, just not going to get that many. They have a lot of leagues." And I thought, well, if you've got a lot of leagues, then you're going to have a lot of American League only five by five. But they don't. You know, they, everybody's got these little rules, tweaks about innings minimums or at-bat maximums and all these kind of things, and they're all subtly or not so subtly different, which means when you're trying to aggregate them, you end up with, you know, five or six leagues that have essentially identical rules, and uh, at that point, you're really not aggregating enough, I don't think, to, to say to yourself, I can generalize to the whole student body here from this from this sample because it's simply too small. Right. No, that's exactly the problem. Um I'm not. I'm, I will not say that's a bad thing to have so many different varieties of rules, but it um, definitely makes the what would would be a very simple case of um, of analysis much more complicated. Still, another misunderstood concept you wrote about Peter was fab, and this is something that's been going on in fantasy baseball now for years. What don't people get about fab? Well, I think the um, the. The issue with fab is that you're you're buying your free loot. You're getting your um, free stats through the fabbing process. You're using your hundred dollar or a thousand dollar budget to pick up free agent players, and there's a temptation to pick up players who will help you in one category. Like, um, oh, here's the steals guy, and and um, and you go after the the steals. And you don't really pay attention to the fact that he's really got a bad batting average, or um, it, this happens even more with um, with pitching, where you say, "I, you know, I need wins and strikeouts," and I'm adding, and you're churning, and you're adding guys week to week, and you're not really paying attention to how badly they're hurting your ERA and WHIP, and um, the and the process is one of of balance, and you and um, I, I'm not sure that to call it misunderstood is is uh, accurate, but it's really a case here where on the hitting side of things, we we buy in the auction, we buy about 90% of the stats that are out there in, at the end of the year or that are have been used and played in our fantasy leagues at the end of the year. 90% of them come on auction day. Um, with pitching, it's a little bit different. We, we buy about 80% of our stats. So... Um, in fab, we're looking for that other twenty percent in the in the pitching part, and and we we buy ninety percent of our wins and twenty five percent of our saves and twenty one percent of our strikeouts after the auction. But we also, with those accumulated counting stats, also often come bad ERAs and bad ratio, which offset some of the good things that they bring. And um, so I think it's just important when you're fabbing to keep an eye out on that 
you're uh, you're affecting your team both up and down and um you should keep it, you have to keep an eye on that otherwise you can hurt yourself just as much as you help yourself another uh, misunderstood factor in fantasy baseball you wrote about was leading indicators and uh, if, if people don't understand the term uh, baseball hq uses it a lot and this is things like um, batting eye or strikeout rate as indicators of possible changes in performance and you say this is all misunderstood why was that Well, I, I just think calling them leading indicators is not, um, it, they're not really leading indicators. Those those things, and, and I came to this because of base, Baseball HQ, it, that they're really just indicators. Hitters don't walk more and strike out less, and that leads to them being better hitters. When they strike out less and walk more, they become better hitters. They are better hitters, Um Roughly speaking, the two things happen at the same time. So, when you look at a player who has a career year, and it's because his, he he walked more and he struck out less and he hit for more power, um, and and it and it it isn't because there was a leading indicator and and you said, oh look, he's he's getting better at this um, eye ratio and and let's look for him to hit for more power. As soon as the eye ratio improves, the power improves or whatever you know whatever comes from improvement comes um, simultaneously so it's not it's not a leading indicator it's an indicator that it's an it shows that there that there's improvement there and um, the contact rate is a is maybe a better as a, as a different example um, a low contact rate leads to a low batting average generally and a high contact rate leads to a high batting average um, and that's just what happens. It's not a leading indicator. You don't say, oh, this guy has a low contact rate. He's going to be a bad hitter. That's a low batting average hitter. That's just what the relationship usually is. Now, it is worth looking to see if the contact rate aligns with the batting average. Sometimes they get out of a line. You'll see a guy with a decent batting average who has a low contact rate for a short period. And and if they disagree, if the two things disagree, um, then you know there's going to be what uh, you know we call regression or whatever that these the numbers are going to come back into um, a line and the contact rate is going to prevail. Um, so th- th- those are the things uh, they're not leading indicators. Why well, an interesting ind- leading indicator I think is a, a, something Bill James came up with many years ago. A guy who has a lot of doubles and um, home run and not many home runs. You, your general Jed Lowry is the guy from last year who everybody's looking at this year. Um, I think he had 49 doubles and three home runs. And the thought is that some of those doubles will become home runs, and um, and that he'll hit more home runs this year because of all those doubles. That that's a leading indicator, but it is really more just a indicator. Um, that's that's my spiel. So if I understand you correctly, then the the idea that we've often thought about, and I know a lot of people use, including me, is that uh, if you pick what you think are leading indicators, and I like uh, the various expected ERA metrics, if and if that's out of alignment, it's just a, a temporary kind of thing that's not projectable, or... Uh, 
what what is the relationship between those kind of a little bit more advanced uh, indicators? Uh, we have like a hard contact index we use at Baseball HQ that if a guy's making good contact and hitting the ball hard and not being rewarded, there's still no expectation that the rewards will come if we're just patient or maybe we target that guy from a from an impatient owner during the during the season. How, what is that relationship like with those kind of indicators? Well, those so those are descriptive stats. Let's say you're um, you're a hitter and you hit the ball hard ten times, and you should you should get um, seven hits on those ten ten at bats that you hit the ball hard. But it, it, instead, you hit it right at the shortstop. You hit it right at the left fielder. You hit it right at um, you know the shifted third baseman behind second base, and um, and so all of a sudden you only have three of those ten. Our, our, you can say that guy had bad luck. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. And um, it, over time, that should even out. Um, I, I'm not sure that's a leading indicator. It definitely is something to keep an eye on. If a guy who hits the ball hard is going to have more hits than a guy who doesn't hit the ball hard, generally, um, and over time. So looking at the comp- I, I think of those more as the components of of the stats that we end up with hitting the ball hard is a component of getting hits um, and uh, and if you are not getting hits and you're hitting the ball hard probably the in the future you're going to get more hits as long as you keep hitting the ball hard um, I, I quibble I guess with the, the word leading indicator but I I mean obviously uh, Hitters who, um, pitchers who have high BABIP allowed and are obviously not throwing meatballs all the time, um, you know, often that balances out to some extent. Um, those are things that where we're capturing the random acts of the game and we're, and we're seeing where the randomness is coming in and we're saying it's going to correct itself and that that's, um, that's a place we can try and take advantage of, of uh, our knowledge, our observation of what's going on. Um, so I, I am with you. I think that's what we have to look at to see if a guy is playing badly or if he's playing well and the results are bad. And that's, um, those are the, that's the thing we should always be looking at in terms of player evaluation. And am I correct in assuming that over the short run, these results are going to be way more variable anyway, but maybe if, if a guy has a good contact, good hard contact year in 2017 and not good results to show for it, that we should maybe expect because of the larger sample size and the larger um, amount of uh, incidents to look at that we can expect a little more from in 2018? We should. We I don't think we have um, a definitive... Uh, sense of how the how the balance the ebbs and flows balance because we don't have enough um, of that sort of data in the, in a consistent format over the last ten years. We have we have bits and pieces of this and that um, from different sources, but until we have a, until we have a sense of how the uh, the until we have a sense of how the um, the arc of a career is shaped by this stuff. Um, I think we're we're feeling our way along gingerly, trying to tease out what parts we can count on and what parts are 
um, you know, might might be actually the effect of some skills or something that we don't see or we don't measure right now. I, I, I'm just saying there's a cert- uncertainty about all of that, but it's uh, but for the most part, I agree with you. And I can tell you from having looked at this kind of stuff for many years myself that uh, it's pretty rare, actually, that you'll find, especially in a hitter, that he has a really good year hitting the ball hard and not a good year in actual fantasy production. It just doesn't happen that often. Uh, in fact, it's so it's so rare that when it does happen, you think to yourself, well, this is something I need to look at, but it's uh, it's certainly not a common occurrence that somebody will have a you know a hard contact index rate of 150, 50% above league average and somehow managed to have a bad fantasy year. It just, you know, like you said, in, in a way, a lot of these things are performance indicators in, in the time that they're happening, not not uh, things that you can look forward to. And, and for that reason, maybe uh, this whole idea of leading indicators needs to be re-examined a little bit, especially in the short run, I think. Uh, and finally, Peter, in an essay about misunderstanding the salary cap in fantasy baseball uh, auction leagues, you talked about a fantasy league you played in that didn't have a salary cap. Owners could just keep paying real money without limit, uh, except, I guess, if a wife or an unforgiving bank loans officer. And you said the experience was exhilarating. Tell us about the pay-whatever-you-want fantasy league. Well, the idea was um, that to try to escape the tyranny of prices, like everybody knew what everybody was worth. And, and so what, what would happen if you played where there was just no limit to what you could, you could uh, pay for any player at any given time? So if you needed, you know, if, if you needed a stolen base guy and... and at the at the end game, and Jared Dyson was out there, and you like you might pay a ridiculous amount for him because he was the the last stolen base guy that you could get. So, um, a, a guy named John Hogan started this league. Um, he was he he loved, loved this idea, and um, he started a league with a bunch of people. Um, there were kind of a, there were a few different groups of us. There were the the really rich guys, and then there were the um, the Midland rich guys who had jobs, and then there were guys like me who was a fantasy baseball writer but who really loved this idea and wanted to play. Um, and the basic idea, we sat and you just kept bidding. You'd say the name would come out and people would just keep bidding. And the rich guys, like, they would just have $250 for, I don't know, Barry Bonds, and and then everybody would laugh. And, uh, and um, we played for two years. And it was uh, and it was fantastically fun, um, and uh, we learned a lot about the you know doing away with like players not having fixed prices. But of course, players do have fixed prices. They're just different in each in whatever system you have. And even in a league like that, players have fixed prices that largely depend on how deep the pockets are of the guy who's considering what the what the value is worth. And uh, that that was the when I first read about this, I thought to myself, boy, I wouldn't want to be in a league with Bill Gates, or I certainly wouldn't want to be in a league with Warren Buffett. And in fact, I remembered back to when uh, I played in a league with a guy who was a very well paid guy compared to the rest of us. We all had jobs, and we we're all sort of middle class earners. And from that point of view, we probably could have done it because it would all depend on, you know, how willing you were to back up your um, opinions with actual hard cash. But if you even have uh, one or two guys in the league for whom $100 is to them what $5 is to you, 
it really distorts the ability of everybody to pay. And the rich guy seems to have an unbeatable advantage. Is that how it worked out? Did a rich guy in your league always win? Well, it, it turned out that we ended up with um, tiers. So the the rich guys would play, and they they were budgeted to whatever they wanted to to play. So there were let's say let's say of the twelve teams, there were four rich guys. They would battle for the top four places, and um, they would spend way way more and. The the guy who came in fourth would lose a bunch of money, and the guy maybe the guy who came in third would lose a little bit because he spent so much and the payout wasn't enough. We had graduated payouts all the way down to eleventh place. So, um, and then what? Then there was the middle group, and they would do a similar thing. So the first group would they'd pay like three thousand dollars a team, and the top guys would win, and the bottom guy would lose. The middle guys would be the same thing. They'd pay like a thousand to twelve hundred for their guys, and then the top one or two would win, and the second two or bottom two would lose lose some money. And in the last group, which is where I found myself because I just didn't see how I could um, compete financially with the other guys, um, I I would win. I the section I would win, you know, I'd make money by coming in um by coming in eighth, which is kind of ridiculous. But um and then the the guys who came in eleventh and twelfth um would lose money. And that happened the first year and, and we tried to jigger change the rules a little bit, but the same thing happened the second year and we all realized that we were all playing different games. It wasn't it wasn't the the wild free for all that it we'd hoped it would become. And um, I, I tried to push a couple of um, in a, a couple of ways of handling it so that it would be different. One was um, making it a, a keep, adding some keepers so that there were there were ways you could stash players um, to try and build to have a two or three year plan where you would spend less for a couple of years and then you would then you would you know go all in and um, to to try and compete with the big boys with your keepers and. Um, there wasn't a lot of, um, and I think that is would be a necessary component, so that everybody's on a different different um, arc in terms of their uh, team development. And then the other thing was um, not having the prizes be unfixed, but instead fixing the first place prize to whatever, and then whenever more money was spent, having it go to the lower prizes all, all the way down to eleventh um, place. And and then build back up so that uh, first place is never going to earn more than this. But if if people spend more and more, then the the second, third, fourth, and fifth place payouts get higher. With um, that's that's a nice nice noise. Anyway, the um, that's the uh, that was my attempt to try and salvage the league and to try and get to a place where. There wasn't a fixed price where you didn't say Joey Votto is a $32 player um, or a $42 player in an OBP league. Like that's um, that was the goal, and we and it's still out there. We haven't um, haven't gotten that off the ground. 
It seems like if you fix the price at the, or the payout at the top of the thing, you have established a de facto salary cap because nobody's going to bid above that for their team unless they're just so fixed on winning for the pride of it or whatever that they're willing to lose money every year. Uh, and this whole thing, uh, it sounds like, uh, reminds me of, especially if you did have keeper leagues, it would be how the Kansas City Royals were able to compete with the Los Angeles Angels, despite vast payroll discrepancies, was by careful building and all that kind of thing. It would still be uh, it'd still be fraught with difficulty if you weren't one of the rich guys. It's definitely um, definitely a, a problem. I mean, it, it, it's definitely rich people have an advantage over poor people and whatever, and so. Um, the, in, in terms of money, and and so it's it, it may have been it may not be a workable idea in the unless unless everybody in the league is you know a minimum of five billion dollars or something. But it's um, but it was a, it was um, it was definitely fun. Uh, it, it was exciting to try and come up with something new and do something different that. Um, you know, I never talked to anybody who'd, who'd thought of such a thing. So it was, uh, it was our little wild west adventure, and and we had a, we had a good time with it. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun, that's for sure. Uh, Peter, let's wrap this up. But we know that fantasy information and fantasy analysis are being more and more widespread and, and catching on much more quickly than in years past. To what extent has player understanding, uh, fantasy owner understanding, caught up with these realities on these sorts of issues over the last few years? Well, I don't, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, I've been thinking about ways that we could try and analyze over time how much we actually, how much more information, and how much better information we're actually capturing. Um, and are our projections really getting better or are they Roughly the same. Our our um, is a, is our our percentage of hits on the picks and pans better, or are they just the same? Um, it's it feels to me like we're getting better. Um, it feels to me like an awful lot of the statcast and um, and pitch effects and the and the various this and um, inside edge data is helping us understand what makes players more valuable, what makes them um, more consistent or less consistent from year to year. Uh, those things are all, uh, it seems that way, but I don't, I haven't seen a way for it to be measured that has, has made me say, oh yeah, we're definitely doing better in terms of that stuff. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from Ask Roman and Tout Wars. And Peter, uh, during the season, I like to ask our expert guests to talk about players that you think might be boons and banes for the rest of this fantasy season. Uh, boons being guys you think uh, could help fantasy teams, uh, banes being guys you think they should be a little more cautious about. Let's start with your boons, the guys you think should interest our listeners. In the American League, who's a boon hitter? I... I don't know. I'm kind of fixated on Tim Anderson this year. It's uh, he's uh, he's young. He's I mean he's really young. He's um, middle infielder. He doesn't walk. He hasn't. He's walked like three and a half percent of the time so far. But he's um, he's only 23, and uh, I you know I think there's a chance that he's going to grow into becoming a. Uh, he's already a power speed guy, and I think there, there's the potential for more there. 
Um, I, I just, I think, for whatever reason, I think he's overlooked because he, he hasn't walked, but that's not his destiny necessarily. Yeah, the problem with Tim Anderson, of course, is he's such a sink on batting average and uh, especially in on-base percentage leagues, quite a disaster. But, yeah, you have to be intrigued with a guy who's a 2020 guy at, what, age 21 or whatever he, whatever he was, a uh, real intriguing player, Tim Anderson. How about in the National League, who's a boon hitter that you like? Well, the, so um, Brian Anderson is off to a, a great start in Miami. Um, he's starting because... Uh, because um, Martin Prado, I guess, is is uh, hurt, um, and Prado seems to be always hurt. So um, Anderson's got off to a good start. I could see him holding on to the job if he keeps hitting. Uh, he's a good young hitter, and um, and you know it's a young team. They don't need to wait for the old, they don't need to make way for the old guy. So uh, he's a, a cheap, lively guy with a generic name. Um, that I think is worth looking at. All right, over to the mound in the American League. Who's a pitcher? Doesn't have to be named Anderson. Who's a boon for uh, fantasy owners this year? Ah, good point. Um, so Trevor Bauer had a fantastic second half last year. He um, has had great stuff and, you know, is an in- intriguing guy and an intense guy, and um, and he's committed to excellence. And I think that... Uh, you know, maybe he'll he'll have a few ups and downs, but I think he's found his. Uh, I think he's found his center, and he has a good chance to be very, very ace-like this year. And finally, in the National League, who's a pitcher? Who's a boon for you this year? Uh, the guy I was I was been looking at all spring was Luke Weaver, who um, has just a ton of talent and is a little has been a little cheap because he's he's probably not going to pitch 200 innings. He's not proven it for a full season obviously there are you know you can't take him for granted but you also don't have to pay full price so i just like his situation and um you know the team is the team is pretty seems to be pretty decent and he's um a young arm who's growing into maturity at the at at this point i think so look for him to have a good season Peter Kreutzer's Boons, Tim Anderson of the White Sox, Brian Anderson of Miami, Trevor Bauer of Cleveland, and Luke Weaver from St. Louis. Uh, Peter, let's move over to your Bain players, guys about whom you think listeners should be a little more cautious. Once again, we'll go over to the American League. Who's a Bain hitter that you think uh, maybe our listeners should be cautious about? Well, it's so early to damn these guys, but um, and, I, and I can't keep straight which Matt Davidson or Chapman hit a bunch of homers on opening day and then others after that. But, um, both of these guys are powerfully, but are powerful, but they're, you know, not that good. They're not such good hitters. Um, they're not unrosterable. Um, but they could hit 40 home runs and not be that valuable because they'll, they'll make enough outs. Um, so I, I guess I'd warn, I don't know if they're Baines, but I'd say don't overestimate them. Don't get too excited about them. Don't get too excited about the power. It, it's, the power is going gonna, is gonna to be there, but so is a lot of stuff that you don't really want that much. Over in the National League, how about a Bane hitter? Well, you know, so Matt Carpenter. I'm just going to say Matt Carpenter. He's, he gets on base a lot. That's good. Um, but he's he has no defensive position, um, which is not so good. And um, and it just feels like his game is slowly slipping, and um, and I'm so I'm not as a bane. I'm not saying oh 
he's the bane of my existence, stay away. But um, I, I would just be wary about finding um, him getting old kind of quickly and, and uh, not having a place to play on defense, you know, could affect his playing time as well. Two Andersons in your Boone hitters, three Mats in your Bane hitters. Uh, how about an American League pitcher you think is a Bane? It's funny. I was watching Cole Hamels the other day, and um, he's striking guys out. He's He doesn't seem to be impaired in any way, but he's just not that good. And um, at some point, you have to decide whether it, there's unrealized potential that's going unexpressed or whether... Uh, you know, maybe the results count for more than just the game. And, and so I worry that at this point with Hamels, the results count more than the the fact that the strikeouts are still there. And um, and that for what, as much as he can get strikeouts, he's still making mistakes and he's still getting in, in trouble that are costing him games. And, and um, so I would stay away from him. And finally, a National League pitcher who's a bane. I, the, this is based more on price than anything else. Um, John Gray is somebody who is low-hanging fruit because of Colorado, um, and he's being bid into the teens. He's obviously a very talented pitcher, and um, and as we've seen in the past, uh, pitchers who you know can put together a good year, the humidor certainly helps. The blah 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 all of that. But spending in the teens for a pitcher in Colorado, um, I, that just feels a little loose to me, and, and I would uh, I would not go there. Peter Kreutzer's Baines uh, in the hitters, Matt Davidson and Chap- Matt Chapman from Oakland uh, from the National League, Matt Carpenter of St. Louis, so we have a trio of unwelcome Matts. Uh, in the pitcher side, Cole Hamels of Texas and John Gray of Colorado. Uh, Peter, this has been great. Tell our listeners where they can read more from Peter Kreutzer. Well, during the season, I'm mostly uh, writing at, at patentandco.com, which is a great discussion board for uh, about fantasy issues with um, built around player pages. So if you have a question about a player, you go to his page, you enter a question, um, and you know somebody like me, or we have an incredible group of people who are contributing over there and talking about baseball. Um, you know, we'll, we'll chime in and, and uh, maybe you know get into a discussion about some of these issues, which we uh, we love to talk about. Um, so that's where I am mostly. I'm of course also at blog at askrotoman.com, and we're um, trying to keep the Tout Wars site a little livelier this year. Um, so I'll be around. Twitter Peter feed, Kreutzer Facebook blogs at AskRotoman.com and writes regularly you know, at PattonandCo.com and is a founding member of the Board of Directors of Tell Wars. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Peter, Tuesday, thanks a million for uh, talking thanks with very me much for uh, taking the time today. It's always fun to talk to you about fantasy baseball and fantasy baseball issues. Uh, season. It was great to I see you in New York and I'm sure this Tuesday talking edition of our show. Peter Kreutzer from Ask Roderman and Pelt Wars and Patton and Co. He's a good friend of mine and of the podcast and I'm always glad for the opportunity to talk with him. A very thoughtful guy. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast or an old joke is available. 
More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Thursday with our regular news and commentary edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Thursday and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.